Previously on the Intermillennium Media Project. Now, we are talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes! So it's the rest in peace, let this movie stand on its own and be what it is, or another story in the same continuity. I kind of am not leaning towards revival then. I mean, I, I don't want to go that way. If If the point is we're not going to understand it, then continuing the story and trying to make it understandable is just gonna i don't think that would work as well i'm not i'm not for that so i'm gonna say rest in peace considering this movie i would also say rest in peace okay so we'll be back in two weeks with talk about another science fiction movie oh no Whether we are based on carbon or silicon makes no fundamental difference. We should each be treated with appropriate respect. Hello again, everyone, and, and welcome back to the Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. <laughs> and you probably, even if you haven't seen the title of the episode, you've got some idea as to what we're talking about. My God. It's full of continuation. <laughs> <laughs> Last time we talked about 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968, and you really weren't sure whether that movie needed a sequel, were you, Ian? No, no, I wasn't sure. Well, now we're going to explore that further because we are talking about 2010. Yep, nine movies later, we're talking about 20... No, 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 actually, it's just the next one directly. They didn't do one for each year, which I kind of almost thought at first when I heard the name. <laughs> and te technically, 2010, the year we make contact, is the full title of the movie, just as the, the full title of the other one is 2001 A Space Odyssey. I've never heard a title. I have to. Fe I feel like I'm supposed to say spoiler alert for the title. It's like it tells you what's going to happen. Well, I don't know. Given the end of 2001, you've got the Star Child heading back to Earth. It's either the year we make contact or the year we ignore the Star Baby. Not a lot of options in between. And that's not even right. Contact was made in 97. They're not even getting that accurate. <laughs> Another good movie, technically out of bounds, time-wise, for the podcast. We might uh, have to do a special about that. Okay. Contact yeah, uh, is a good movie. Heads up, to the, uh, heads up to you listeners. This is going to be an episode where we're probably going to bring up a lot of other movies, I feel like, because there's just something about this one where it keeps relating to other things in my mind. Very, very true. In some ways, that makes this a more pivotal movie than you would expect. It pulls so many references, and I think it was somewhat influential in its own right. Really? I think so. Because this is a movie that is just blanked in what I've run into. There's a lot of other films of this style, of this genre, of this era that I'm a fan of, and that the, the continual media churn of this concept and style is something i love but this movie in particular i hadn't even touched or been very aware of until we were talking about recording it well you know maybe i am giving it too much credit if i say that it's influential because really i would say that it is a it is an excellent execution of many things that were not particularly novel 
Okay. I want to back up a little bit and talk about how this movie came to be made, because that fills in some of those gaps. Please explain. In 1968, well, sometime prior to 1968, you've got uh, Arthur Clarke's short story, The Sentinel. That inspires the idea for, for Stanley Kubrick to work with Arthur C. Clarke to make 2001 A Space Odyssey. They both work on the script. While they're working on the script, Clark also writes a novel, 2001, which comes out after the movie. And 2001 is very, very influential. Oh, yeah. Stands on its own for a long time. I mean, that that changes the course of of cinema in some ways. Then, in the early 80s, Clark writes the novel, 2010, a sequel to 2001. Okay. That comes out in 1982, but clearly before the novel even was published, they were in talks to make a movie based upon it. Because only two years later, 1984, 2010 comes out. 2010 was written and directed by Peter Hyams, who did work very closely with Arthur C. Clarke on the screenplay, although I don't know that Clarke gets a screenwriting credit for it. But I do remember reading a newspaper article about the fact that Hyams, who was either in the U.S. or in the U.K. at the time, and Clark, who lived in Sri Lanka, were collaborating because they were able to make their computers talk to one another over phone lines. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. They could do what with what? (laughs) And that's how they collaborated when Hyams was writing the screenplay. That actually kind of explains an entire scene in this movie. And this is not the first Peter Hyams movie that you and I have watched and talked about for this podcast. What have we watched from him? A movie called Capricorn One. Oh, you're kidding me. That was also written and directed by Peter Hyams. He likes astronauts and spaceships. He does. (laughs) That explains so much of all of this. Okay. (laughs) Spaceship! Spaceship! Oh, goodness. Okay. But Himes, he does spaceships well, though. He does. He, he does and, spaceships and well. The designers and, and the lighting people and the sound people he works with, they do spaceships well. I think they had those parts of Capricorn One really believable, and um, even more so, I think, in in 2010. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. 2010 is. Okay, compare. I've got to compare it. It's it's the sequel. It has to be compared. So I'm going to just dive in. And as we kind of enter the film itself, the tone immediately struck me. Because 2001 feels like an epic. It feels like a piece of mythology. It's got that grandeur to it between its scope, its style, its scale, its definitely its soundtrack. 2010 feels like a a drama movie and that would be absolutely to be expected for the time it came out for the style everything else the fact that it's then connected to 2001 meant that that felt jarring it's it's a a movie that is not as grand or as big so it's i'm going to have to try to not compare it too much to 2001 because it can't stand up like that but it'll be, I'm trying to analyze it as itself in that sense. And think about this, the running time of 2001, A Space Odyssey, 
is only about 30 minutes more than the running time of 2010. And yet, I, I always enjoy watching 2001, but it always seems like it took a week. Not because it's slow, though it, it is. It is. But because there's so much in it. Well, there's so much in it, but there's not a lot of plot points in it. Whereas 2010, it's an adventure story. It starts and it moves. Mm-hmm. It's, they both are playing connect to the dots. 2001 connects individual, very powerful dots with thick, thick lines of atmospheric storytelling. 2010 is connecting a lot more little dots with bold, quick strokes from one spot to another. And it keeps a pace that's very different because of that. And I think that for a lot of people, more so than with 2001, people have to think about, if they're really going to think about what they like about uh, 2010 or whether they like 2010, they need to separate. There's the story, there's the characters and the performances, and there's the design and filmmaking. And I think that's fair with a movie like this to separate those out. Oh, yeah. So, of course, because we will talk about story, spoilers, as always. What do you think about the story of of 2010 on its own and as a follow-up to 2001? It's strangely good at being able to answer questions that I had about, 20, about 2001 while introducing brand new ones. It also is kind of brilliantly cheesy, especially now, because of its presumptions of the future and era that seem so odd and off in the best ways. <laughs> because it become it's immediately, this is a story about uh, America and the Soviet Union in 2010. Yeah, if it seems weird watching 2001 now, uh, with, and it seems dated because they've got Pan Am and the bell system still around here in 2010 it's we've got uh all of that and we've got the soviet union and the u.s with a military face-off in central america it's it, it's more proof of the fact that science fiction is always about the time it was written yeah and 2001 was about the late 60s in many ways and 2010 is about the uh the first half of the reagan era Oh yeah, this is definitely set. It is definitely set mentality-wise in that time, even if it's set temporally in a future which is much boxier than most of the future it <laughs> became. And they pick up very well, I think, on some of what was laid down in 2001 about US-Soviet relations in this environment in this world. Oh yeah. Because in the the Haywood Floyd sequence of 2001, we've got that tense conversation on the space station where the Soviet scientists are trying to squeeze a little information out of Floyd about what's going on on the moon, on Clavius, and Floyd staying mum. They were scientifically cordial, but recognizing the fact that tensions were very high between their respective countries. Here, we get the same thing. Scientists who are devoted to science and want to work together but they have to recognize the fact that their countries are not friendly right now. And it all starts out with a so the, the, the Soviet head of their space program coming to talk with Dr. Haywood Floyd. 
the the interaction there in 2001 implies a a political relation that is tense and dangerous but everyone's been in it for so long that they can kind of be jovial and a little and a little uh casual about it they can oh yeah i mean we could be in a fight next week anytime it's like oh hey there's something friendly cuz everyone's just used to the tension at this point they've gotten it's there it's um, it's present but they've gotten they've gotten accustomed to it and 2010's interaction is yes our countries could be fighting at any minute and the one thing the two of us can relate on is that we're tired of it yes it's like the there is a a connection a bond of just being fed up with how long this has been dragged out yep and yet tensions are are heightened because apparently there's a very specific situation going on in Honduras that is the focal point of this US Soviet uh conflict uh, they they i think wisely don't give us any more details because they don't matter it's just that Honduras is the latest reason for uh, the U.S. and the USSR to be uh, at odds, but it's heating up in that they're all sending ships and there's threats of blockades and it's it could be getting serious. And that this is also, though, a, a movie about a very different type of crew, because 2001, the two of them were scientists. They were smart. They were uh, we had we had a. The a scientist brought in to review a thing on the moon. I guess we could call the monkey the first scientist because he figured out levers. Oh, Maybe. yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've got <laughs> the first scientist ever figures out levers, changes the world. We've got a scientist called to the moon to deal with a problem. We've got two scientists, although they act a little bit more as technicians and engineers in terms yeah. of their science. Their job was to get the scientists to Jupiter. The scientists right. were asleep. They were not. But yeah, those two I want to focus on. They were not the the scientists doing the the heavy calculations and 2010 is a little bit more. What would it be like if those two were asleep and the three people in pods were the ones awake to do the thing? Because they are, it's a very different kind of scientific mindset in terms of how they're approaching. And these crews, the Americans brought along on a Soviet ship to go uh, check the discovery before it uh, sinks into the gravity well and finally do the research and recover the information about the monolith around Jupiter, they're being sent with a kind of um, a different mission parameters and a lot more like steps laid out in front of them at the start, I'd say. Yeah, in some ways we're set up with uh, what could have been another space race. Because both the U.S. and the Soviets want to send a mission to find out what happened to Discovery. So it's not kind of the very amorphous mystery of, well, why did this monolith on the moon send a signal in the direction of Jupiter? It's the U.S. sent people out there and something really bad happened. What was it and why? And both countries are planning and preparing missions to go out there, but the Soviets are going to be ready first. And something's changing the orbit of Discovery, and it's going to crash sooner than the U.S. could get there. Yeah. So, so they hitch a ride, and, and this 
this is this great interchange between Haywood Floyd and his Soviet counterpart at the beginning of this movie. Like, you know, maybe we can convince our countries to let this happen. We need to get there before things are a problem. And that's, and our point is recovering what we already have out there. Your point is the PR of it. It's like, oh, so, I mean, we get the, we get the, the honor of having the, the ship that gets out there first. And of course we took along the, the Americans who just needed a ride and you get what you need out of that ship and share some of it with us. <laughs> and Haywood Floyd is not played by William Syl- Sylvester. As no. he was in 2001. He's played by Roy Scheider. Yeah, who, very different performance. Very different performance, very different character. Um, not totally jarring. I could imagine if you know the ages and timing worked out, I could imagine Roy Scheider playing the Haywood Floyd of 2001. So it works. Kind of. He has a different charisma. He has a different presence. He always... He plays Hayward Floyd as a man who's a little bit more on the balls of his feet, ready to move and do something, instead of the back-on-his-heels Hayward Floyd who's here just to sit back and watch what's going on in a bit more confusion. There's a, there's a lost amount of casual styling. And yeah, um, you need somebody like Rushider because this is now a character who has to carry the entirety of an adventure movie as opposed to one segment of a science mystery movie, which is what 2001 was. Mm-hmm. And where in 2001, he was a scientist turned administrator. Here, he has left that job, and now he's a chancellor at a university. And we do see him kind of transform himself back into what you imagine he once was. He's now He's no longer kind of in semi-retirement from the life he used to know, he decides he has to be one of the people who go on this mission. He's the one who sent all those people out there, and they all died. Uh, and he, we see him preparing himself for this mission he never thought he would get to go on, let alone have to go on. But yeah, he's much more of an adventure story character than he was in the first movie. Oh, yeah. And, and they give him a bit of a, a group of intriguing individual characters to, to play alongside him. Because you've got uh, John Lithgow as Walter, uh, Helen Mirren as the captain of the the Soviet ship Tanya, Bob Balaban as Doctor Chandra. Yes, he's the other, the third American on the on the the mission. The Americans are Haywood Floyd, Walter Koenig, I think, who is the engineer who is in the yeah. process of supervising the construction of Discovery Two. Yeah, Walter Kernow. Kernow. He knows more about the original Discovery than anybody else, so if they're going to have a chance to save it, they need him. And then Chandra is the computer scientist behind Hal. And if anybody's going to be able to figure out what happened to Hal and get him working again, or even decide if that's a good idea, it's going to be Chandra. So that's why they've chosen those three Americans to go. This is this is the chance where I get to say that uh, every every character I've ever seen John Lithgow play has somehow been, like, my favorite character of the thing. Doesn't matter if he's playing the good guy, the mentor, the absolute villain. I always am like, oh, he was good. I liked that. He he's, he's, one dis- of the, yeah. he's one of those actors. Such a distinctive actor, and he, he's not... He's, he's still enough of a character actor that you can believe 
he, he immerses himself in the character that he's playing. And yet he's still John Lithgow. He's still compelling to watch. He's still very engaging. And it's fun to see him as this naval architect and engineer who suddenly finds himself going out on space missions. And that's not really what he's up for. No. And it's, so it's the three of them with this crew of the Lyonov, the Soviet Air Force, very big, very Soviet-looking spaceship, going out to see what's happened with Discovery. And the design of this ship is very different. But it's the, it's the point where I realized one of the things that made this film feel different. This is built like a submarine film. Very, very much. And that includes the fact that all of the sets and spaces are a little smaller and cramped. And it's great because it, A, gives the Soviet ship this very different feel than Discovery. But they actually carry that over to zip ahead for a moment. When they get into Discovery, they recreate the sets from 2001, but they're actually scaled a little differently. I could tell when characters were standing next to the pods, they were a little shorter. The rooms were a little tighter, a little smaller, maybe just filmed that way. But even Discovery feels more cramped and small and tight in in scenes. Than it did in 2001. Than it did in 2001. Because compared to the Lyonov, Discovery seems... Open Big and, and bright and oh, open. Oh, yeah. Because you're right. The Leonov is a submarine. It's, it's cramped. The ceilings seem low. Every surface is covered with lighted switches. Everything's very utilitarian. Yeah. Whereas the Discovery always seemed like... It's a padded warehouse. Yeah. Or it's, 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 an it's a, a, a bright, shiny, brand new airport kind of look. Yeah. But it, even everything's a little tighter in this film. A little closer. A little more cramped. But the Leonov is really much that... Although, of course, there's a ship it made me think of. Yeah. Because, my goodness, this feels like the Nostromo from Alien. Very much. Certainly the interiors seem very much like the Nostromo. The the, the central wardroom. Oh, yeah. The fact that this movie came out right between Alien and Aliens made complete sense to me. Yeah, the uh, the exterior design of the Leonov reminds me of the like marine transport spaceship from Aliens. Mm-hmm. This giant square utilitarian kind of thing with this big. It, it has it has a rotating ring for gravity, but its rotating ring looks more like someone haphazardly swinging a pair of hammers in the middle of a <laughs> ship yes. because we need spaces and. It has all of the safety padding and such you kind of saw being standard in uh, 2001's Discovery ship, which then became such a standard thing you put in all the other spaceships you'll ever see. And it makes sense if you've ever seen actual international spaceships. You pad everything. You don't know what you're going to bump into. But then it's cram all the walls full of the extra monitors and sensors and switches and whatever tool you'll need on hand nearby because space is at a premium in space. And this is kind of an ev- the next step of that evolution of style, which I then like so much, and I've seen so many other places now. Well, one of the big story elements that people focused on, when even when they heard that this movie was going to come out before it was released, people were talking about Hal, because Hal is, is such a, a memorable part of 2001, and some people were interested and some people were horrified at the idea that they're going to go and explain what happened with Hal. 
in, in this sequel movie? And isn't that just cheapening things? How do you feel about how, how that was handled? Because they do offer an explanation. And I can't say that it, to me, it was a surprising explanation. I thought they covered it pretty well in 2001. Yeah, it, it made absolute sense. It, it spells it out more. And I'm not going to say what the answer is. Okay. That's one of the things I've decided. I, it spells out what it is, but I kind of picked up on exactly that issue in 2001 itself. The thing that bothers me is that I don't think they give it the grandeur that answering this question would have had, if it or it should have had, if they were going to make it a point. Or it really needed to have an extra layer or something. Because just explaining it very flatly the way they did... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think they they just made explicit what was clear, if implicit, in 2001. So, you know, it was... It was interesting to see characters react to what they learned, but I can't say it was a big revelation. And it was, like you said, it was, it didn't ruin anything, but it could have been bigger and more interesting. Ironically enough, I'm less bothered with what they did with Hal than I am with what they did with David Bowman. Really? Yes. Because David shows up as ghost, kind of, in multiple places. But by doing so, I really felt like they completely undid the spooky, weird ending of potential that we were discussing last time. Yeah. He seems too human. He seems too invested. He is being, like, made messenger. But he's also, like, jumping down to say goodbye to his family and such. And there was something, like... That's such a human response to what's happened to him. And if he's really no longer human anymore, it didn't feel right somehow. It felt weird to say that this should feel that like that issue should be left unresolved and unfulfilled and empty. But I almost think sending him down to hijack a TV and say goodbye actually undid something. You know, I think you're right. It does sort of. It is a little anticlimactic. Yeah. It's kind of a little bit washed out in that, unlike the situation with Hal, where I think the explanation was at least strongly implied in 2001, what happened to Bowman was a still a wild mystery. And while they don't answer that mystery, they somehow make it less mysterious. And yeah, there's a little bit of hand-waving, a little dialogue where the, the David Bowman who appears in 2010 is saying, well... I'm in a different place now, and everything David Bowman was, I still am, and more. And and yet, yeah, the fact that he shows up and interacts with them in, in such a human way, it is anticlimactic. I want him to be more ineffable, more incomprehensible in whatever he has become. Yeah, I, I almost wish that, in the strange way, they humanized how more in this film, they should have dehumanized Bowman more and yeah. made him more... They should have shifted that parallel heavier. If they're going to give Hal a redemption arc, they could. They should give Bowman a what are you arc <laughs> in the way they didn't. And yet, they couldn't have had him convey the information they needed to for the plot if he was too weird and non-human. Yeah. Maybe they could have found some other way of of doing this than have Kier DeLay reprise his role as David Bowman. That was kind of cool to see. Oh, yeah. But, but yeah, it was, it was a little bit, oh, it's you again. 
as opposed to what has become of you. And the message that he has is simply that you've got to leave in two days as opposed to six months or whatever their actual launch window was going to be, because something's going to happen, something wonderful. <laughs> oh, something wonderful is going to happen, and it's going to kill you if you're still here. Um, okay, thank you. I guess that's kind of ineffable. That, I guess kind of. That, uh, the whole final twist of what's going on is just... Mm. So, they're heading out to... And they they head out, they are exploring the Discovery and the monolith around Io, and on their way, they're checking strange readings from Europa. And both of these things kind of result in the same special effect in some ways because on europa something green with chlorophyll like shoots past them and causes an emp and that's the big deal there's something there's chlorophyll and there's something moving down on europa under the ice yeah and when they try to analyze the monolith which i did appreciate that this one actually pointed out the ratio of the monolith and that people have been very confused yep uh, I may or may not have built a monolith or two out of many different things, <laughs> be that Lego or in Minecraft or all sorts of stuff, because the ratio was easy to Google. But when they're actually dealing with the monolith in person, it has green energy, like, zip through it when they get towards the middle, and it just EMP blasts them again and kills a crew member. Yeah, who had become best friends with John Lithgow's character, so yeah. that's kind of, they represented the... Your friendship in spite of their national differences. Because, of course, while the Americans were in cold sleep on the way to the Jupiter system, things got worse between the U.S. and the Soviets. It's kind of the solidarity of engineers there. Pass me that wrench. How about I pass you the wrench and then friendship? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, he he was definitely the pathos character, Max. Absolutely. Max gets... Max, Max gets yeeted by space. Yep. <sighs> but both of these is just like green energy causes electrical problems. And I felt like that was also anticlimactic in terms of what the monolith could do until they showed what the monolith could do. <laughs> and I got really, really surprised by CGI graphic quality. Yeah. Because uh, there's more monoliths. There's a lot of monoliths. Yeah, first of all, the monolith disappears from orbit and reappears uh, in Jupiter's atmosphere. Yeah, it's like, I'm inside here now. And then it starts replicating. A lot. And Jupiter gets a, a, a little black spot on it. And the spot gets bigger. And bigger. And then my suspension of disbelief collapsed. How so? Because when it collapses Jupiter into a brand new star, my response wasn't, oh my word, it was, wow, everything is ruined. <laughs> the Earth's biosphere is not designed to be in a binary system, well, and I don't know how well this will go. It would definitely change things. It's It would be a small enough star far enough away. I don't know that it would destroy things but it would it would be an adjustment that amount of light's gonna mess with most things circadian rhythm yeah there are gonna be more times when there is no full darkness 
Yeah. But yeah, the monolith virus makes Jupiter dense enough to ignite. We get another star. And that means that a lot of the moons of Jupiter are now orbiting a star, not a gas giant planet. Which means that they have some pretty intense changes happening to them immediately. And this all coincides with the final message from whatever we were contacted by via ghosts and green things with EMP powers and monoliths. Yeah, Ghost Bowman gives Hal a final message to broadcast. And all these planets are yours, uh, except Europa. Uh, use them in the name of peace, I yes. believe. All these worlds are yours, except Europa. Attempt no landings there. Use them together, use them in peace. Huh. I don't know how to feel about that. And getting this message, of course, makes the United States and the Soviet Union decide not to fight one another, in spite of the fact that a day and a half before, they were firing missiles at one another's ships and killing lots of sailors. So, uh, that's good that they stopped fighting. That's good. It, um... There's a lot that we've skipped over just in terms of the characterizations and the the mood aboard the Lyanov, and I think the, the actors do a great job. Of course, we haven't spoken much yet about Helen Mirren, who is an amazing actor and does a great job as the captain of the Lyanov. Oh, absolutely. In some ways, the rest of the characters and their portrayals getting to these points are the fun, are, are the interesting part of this film, and... They're the part I've got no con- no worry about because it it was very very smooth from one point to another, and that gave me time to actually go wait what about some <laughs> of the points they arrived at. But all of the acting and the portrayal and the the set design and the style was great in that sense. It kept it going. It just yeah it. A good train to an unexpected destination. I think the the performances and some of the aspects of the design elevate this movie beyond what its story would otherwise be. Yeah. Yeah, make, make it that much more engaging, that much more interesting. And the fact that it is really an adventure movie with an adventure movie pace also helps that. There's not a lot of of space ballet in this. There are not long sequences of, isn't physics wonderful? There's, here is an establishing exterior shot of a really big, dark spaceship. Next scene. But the one exception is the arrow-breaking sequence. The arrow-breaking sequence is... The arrow-breaking sequence is very good. And it's, it's got really cool physical dynamics of these giant balloons popping out as they hurtle around a planet. Yeah, they're skimming the, the outer atmosphere of Jupiter to slow themselves down, put them in the right orbit. And there's just something about a shot, be that model work or CGI, about a planet, like, with a spaceship gliding through the edge of it, zipping along through the blackness. It's like, there's something that that just grabs me. I love that sort of visual. The one thing that really bugs me about the space sequences in this movie, and it makes me glad that they were brief, is the fact that they're not silent. They're not silent. Come on, Peter. Did you watch the original movie, Mr. Himes? Space is quiet. Anybody who's into 2001 knows that space is quiet. If we're watching a a spaceship go through um, aerobraking in Jupiter's atmosphere, and we're doing so from, you know, 
thousand miles away at least. Uh, we're not going to hear anything. We're not going to hear a rumble from the fire that's building around its balloons. Yeah, there is no diegetic sound. You can maybe get away with, uh, you know, swelling orchestral or maybe swelling synth soundtrack to back up a scene. But if it's fire on screen and it's in space, there is no sound of fire. Right. Do not put that in. And in 2001, the tense space, they had lots of music and things in the space ballet scenes, of course, and the very tense space scenes, like getting into the emergency airlock without a helmet, are silent. I wish that the the exterior space shots in that error-breaking sequence had been silent. Because it's not like it would be 10 minutes of silence, not even as if it would have been one minute of silence, because they were cutting to interior shots of what's happening inside the Lyanov at the time. Uh, they could have made space quiet. My goodness, the, sl- the, the absolute impact you would have gotten switching between a completely silent shot of hurtling around the planet and then cutting to the sound of a densely packed Russian submarine of a spaceship creaking with its metal and rattling <laughs> every bolt that hasn't been tightened down enough would have been amazing. It's just like, shake the entire Ace hardware store at the microphone and then cut to nothing. And then shake it again and just throw it right at you. Yes, that that would have been so much... That would have had so much more impact because of the contrast. Exactly. That would have been great. And so it's it's those little things where it's like... But at the same time, so many other films of this sort of space action adventure of around this time period didn't get that memo either. So it kind of just, I, I, I was resigned to it in, a, in an unfortunate way at that point. Yeah, after 1977, after Star Wars, it was probably very tough to convince any movie studio that outer space is silent in terms of what they should portray on screen. And even now, it's, it's not easy to come by. I can think of a few recent movies that used that to really great effect, but it's not very common. And I don't know, it, it's, um, to some extent, it's a lack of, of trust in the audience to understand what's happening. It's, it's a lack of being willing to recognize how impressive and imposing empty space can be, and the way you can portray that is through silence. Yeah. But I, I, saying all of this doesn't quite detract from the fact that that scene is still really cool. It and is. there are moving character things going on during it. They don't, they don't separate their human moments from their action moments. Those are happening simultaneously all the time and feeding back and forth into each other. You, you don't really get one without the other at any moment. And that's something that I think is a bit of a difference between this and 2001 in that almost all of the humans you encounter in 2001 are very reserved and very clinical, partly because of their jobs, partly because of the direction style. Uh, There's not a lot of uncertainty. There's not a lot of emotion. And so much of 2010 is about these are humans with full ranges of emotion all the time involved in these weird, important, distant events. 
It's also interesting to me because this is kind of a movie without an antagonist. They're, the 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 things that they're contacting are not antagonistic. They're just ineffable. They're just unknowable. They're they're dangerous, but they're not antagonistic. Meanwhile, 2001 almost more classically has Hal becoming an antagonist and doing damage and harm. Yeah, that's a good point. So this movie is able to use its action and the danger therein as its as its threat and its drama. And that means that the human and the character portions don't have to be butting heads angry at each other in the same way. Yeah, let's think about that. What conflicts are there in this? The con- there's the conflict of the, uh, the Soviet Union versus the United States and the the way that that conflict filters down into the relationships among the people aboard the Lyonov. But the primary conflict is just knowledge versus mystery. And the fact that they built so much of an adventure movie around that, of course, they had to throw in other dangers like something wonderful is going to happen and it's going to kill you. But it really does, most of it does come down to knowledge versus mystery or science versus mystery. And that's, that's kind of a cool story basis, which we oh, don't yeah. see that often. It tells you it, there is no need for uh, the aliens to be attacking monsters or ever be really seen on screen. There is no need for any one person to be angry at someone else. There are people doing sly and tricky things out of self-interest for themselves, self-interest or national interest or all all these other things. But there's no one character who seems out for only themselves in a in, in a way that doesn't fit in that same way. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Even the the tension aboard the Leonov with you know, Helen Mirren's character, the captain not trusting the Americans, it's it comes from her position as a Soviet Air Force officer. Yeah, it's overcome by get to know me. Right. Which kind of implies that it was it wasn't anything about you specifically that there was anger about. Right. And once it gets to the point where things are really weird, here's some bourbon. Um, you know, that melts away. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> you you brought alcohol on my ship. Give me some. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Friendship. So it's it's it is a very, very different movie from two thousand one. Anybody is. who went into this wanting more two thousand one, uh, I had to ask, well, why? Why? 2001 was plenty. I liked 2001, but it was all the 2001 I need. And I, I don't mind the fact that this sequel exists and is so different. And um, first time I saw this movie, yes, I wasn't eight years old, obviously. Thank goodness. I was in college, and I got to see it at a, a press screening, a preview screening. Oh, sweet. Because I was uh, in the arts section of the, uh, the school newspaper. Uh, so my friend and I went into the city, to the Ziegfeld Movie Theater, great movie theater. I believe it's closed now, very sadly. Oh. I saw some really great movies there, including this press greeting for 2010. And it was an interesting crowd to see it with because, and I'd been to some other press screenings, but more than any of those, it was a very enthusiastic crowd. And there were, there was, there were a few gasps through it. There were, was applause at the end, you know, that final shot really positive response to the movie uh, then. And 
it was a good way to see it because of this big group of people, none of whom really knew what to expect responding to the movie in the way that they did. That sounds cool. That sounds like a really cool way to see this. It was. And it's probably colored any reviewings I've had since then. Hmm. Is this leading into our final questions then? You know, I think it is. Okay. Screen or no screen? I'm going to say screen, but don't expect it to be 2001. Kind of as what we were just describing. I think that if you're watching other movies from of this style, if you're watching Alien and Aliens, which we might have... I'm guessing we're going to wind up doing something. Yeah, we're going to have to see those. I thought so. But if you're watching that sort of thing, this is a fine film to toss into the rotation. But I almost don't suggest watching it as a sequel to 2001. I almost feel like this could have been disconnected. It, not quite. Its setup relies on that, but its style does not in some ways. You have to have seen 2001 to really make heads or tails of this movie. But you don't really have to see this movie as a continuation of the story of 2001. Exactly. So if you toss it in amongst a couple of these other films and like, we're going to have a movie group and for the next month, we're going to each like watch a thing like this. This will be fine. and It'll fit right in with those other films. And so I say screen it. It's fun. It's more of that same sort of style. It's a, a dish that I already like that I will happily enjoy more of. It's just not a follow up to the other thing in the same way. Yeah, I, I agree. It's If you like 80s spaceship movies, this is a really good 80s space movie. Uh, if you liked Capricorn 1, yeah, this is, I think, a, a better, more sophisticated movie from the same director. That brings up our next question. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Pardon me if I'm nervous based on how we got to where we are right now. Are you about to pull a a, a, a complete surprise on me and throw a third film? <laughs> no, no, I am not. Okay. There was another novel. Oh? Um, How many? I think just the one. A third novel by Arthur C. Clarke. A sequel to 2010. Oh, oh, okay. So, there was 2061 Odyssey 3. And then 3001, The Final Odyssey. Oh, I didn't even know about that, that uh, fourth novel. Yeah. All right. So, uh, but no movies. Okay. I don't believe they've made any movies of any of those. Okay. Reboot is right out, in my opinion. Okay. I mean, if you're doing a reboot, but you're not doing it as part of a reboot of 2001, which doesn't need a reboot... You're really just making a brand new story because you can't connect it back the same way. And it wouldn't be the same because I don't think you could fit this story into the style to match it to 2001 properly. So you're kind of left with a thing that doesn't either reboot properly if you're changing any part of it. Or is not connected to what it is if you're trying to make it on its own. So yeah, a, a reboot of 2010 in and of itself, that would just be a remake. And I don't see any, enough flaws in 2010 to require a remake. Mm -hmm. A revival implies a third movie. <laughs> and my mind is like, that's unnecessary. But it's also very intrigued with the idea of we went from introspective drama piece to humanist action film. 
what's the next genre it would become if you did it again? <laughs> Do we wind up with like a Hallmark love story set in space if you just keep on changing it every time you make another one? I guess. Oh goodness, it's that it's the it's it's the other 9000 series Sal down on Earth. Uh trying to figure out and somehow uh falling in falling in love with a a somehow survived Hal. <laughs> It's just it. It just becomes AI romance story. I mean, it doesn't. It's. It, I don't think so. This no. is all just fun speculation. I think it's a, a a rest in peace. But there's some fun in the what would you even do? Question yeah. mark. It, it is fun to think of what could possibly be next. Uh, the Alien series is a great example of every movie is a different genre. Yes, but I, I can't see them pursuing more in the the 2001 universe. So I would say rest in peace. Yeah, rest in peace. 2001, we, we talked about. Uh, to the, uh, 2010, also. Good movie, let it stand on its own. Go ahead and watch it. We don't need anything more done with it or to it or about it. Cheer for seeing Lithgow. Cry alongside Lithgow when he gets a uh, sad moment. Cause... Oh, and after Max has, has oh, yes. died, uh, Walter is wearing Max's hat. It's, it's, like, it's oh. precious. It's, gosh... They were such great friends all of a sudden, and now he's lost his, his best friend, Max. Dang it. Yeah. Oh. Very, like you said, a very human story. Very human story. But yeah, I'd say go ahead and screen it, but let it rest in peace. Ah. So I think that wraps things up. I think so. We'll be back in two weeks with, uh, with uh, more tales of media from the 20th century. So, meanwhile, if they, if people need to send out a space expedition to retrieve the information available about you, Dad, where would they be sending? <laughs> you can find some information on bymatthewporter.com, and you'll also be able to find me on Twitter as uh, bymatthewporter. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found as itemcrafting on Twitter, itemcraftinglive on Twitch, or at itemcrafting.com. And you can find our podcast here at immproject.com. That's where you will find links to all of our past episodes. You'll also find a link to our Discord and our contact page. We'd love to hear from you there. Find out what you thought about these movies. What do you think the next genre would be if they made another movie in this sequence? You'll also find a link to our, our shop. If you like coffee mugs, t-shirts, fun things like that, a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much for anybody who's able to uh, support us there. We really appreciate it. And if you do support us on Patreon, you get some additional audio content each month. And if you join the Intermillennium Media Project Movie Club, you'll also get a mystery DVD in your mailbox periodically. And you can also find the podcast on Twitter as IMMPCast. Well, thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much for downloading. And we hope you'll be back with us in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>